You're listening to Were You Still Talking? Hey, welcome back. This is Were You Still Talking? Today in my studio, or actually by Zoom, unfortunately, maybe for another year, I don't know, hopefully shorter than that, I have Simon Tam on today, and this is the first, not the first, it's one of the first people that I've had in the last uh, couple months that I don't need to look at an intro sheet for because I have known of Simon for a long time. Uh, I am friends of his on Facebook, although we've never met face-to-face or even Zoom-to-face. But a long, long time ago, I actually tried out or, st- or talked about auditioning for his band, which he doesn't know, so I'll talk about that later. So he's on here today because he is the creator of a band called The Slant. And he wrote a book, Asian... Um, the book's called Slanted, and uh, he it's Asian-American Troublemaker. It's about his, uh, not only about the journey of the band, which is an amazing and entertaining journey. I'm listening to it on Audible, which uh, Simon um, Simon did himself, which I which is always nice when the author reads the book. It's an awesome thing. And also, he knows a lot about recording, so he's able to do that. But it's about his battle to use Slanted as a trademark that went all the way to the Supreme Court. Absolutely phenomenal. How you doing, Simon? I'm I'm doing well. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. Really, um, it's my pleasure. Um, I was really, I've been fascinated by this uh, journey for a long time. I've actually been watching it. I had no idea of the details because, you know, I see a couple of Facebook posts, but now listening to the book, uh, it's phenomenal. I mean, it, it's really, uh, and the book gets into so many different things. Um, you know, the hidden racism in America that none of us think about, uh, being Asian American, um, being in a band, what it's like being on the road with a band, which I'm semi familiar, you know, somewhat familiar with. It, it's a lot, there's a lot more adventures than I think people realize. Uh, they just see the band on stage, but they don't realize. They don't think about the the broken down vans and all those kind of things. So it, I'm really I'm really enjoying the book. It's great. I'm glad right. you're enjoying it. Thank you for listening. Yeah, you bet. And again, I do like. It's always nice when an author narrates. Now, not every author can narrate their own book um, for different reasons, but uh, it, it's great that it's you you narrating it. It's really nice, and it's fun to have the different musical interludes and stuff like that it's really well done i'm assuming you did that all in your own studio i did yeah Uh, yeah thank you i'm glad you're enjoying it 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 was definitely something i had in mind because when i was thinking about having an audiobook um, i too as as a fan of books like read by their own authors i just think there's just something unique like an authentic voice the personal connection that sometimes comes through in the reading that's hard to get from just another voice talent. And I also just as a fan of music thought, how cool would it be to like put in sounds from, from the band so that when I'm talking about a song that people can actually hear the song and make more of a direct connection to, to the material. I think, yeah, I think that works. It works really well. And, you know, it's also really good marketing. <laughs> to be honest <laughs> with you, it's a, it's a great idea. Um, so, wow, this, uh, I don't know where to start here. Oh, I'll start from the beginning. Probably 10 years ago, uh, since I think it was 10 years ago, it was 12, uh, I answered an, um, an ad for a drummer for the slants. 
that's how I first knew of you, how I got on your Facebook, as a Facebook person. It was years and oh, years okay. ago. Yeah. yeah, so I, and you answered back, and, um, you know, I think you were ready to audition me, except that uh, when you said, do you mind if we jump around on your drum set? That's when I, that's when I kind of bowed out. <laughs> Okay. So. <laughs> That's when I went, wait a minute. This, um, hmm, if you buy the drum set, sure. <laughs> if it was jumping on the drum set, then uh, then this would be pretty early on in our career. So it had I'm, to I'm have been. And, I'm and guessing somewhere between yeah. 07 and 09 when we were looking for drummers. And, because that was part of our show. We, we right. just had this very chaotic live show. And the, the first drummer we had, we would, you know, I would jump on his kick drum and while, while, playing mid song and we'd kick over his cymbals and and he was fine with it he would oftentimes get in on throwing him around his drums so um i think that's probably why we were asking mm -hmm. yeah no it's, it's a reasonable question i'm glad you asked before um you know before someone's in the band and on the road and, and you <laughs> sure i mean it's good to ask yeah rather than we just did oh. have a drummer like our, our long time drummer tyler was like not having it so <laughs> you know we ended up having a drummer for almost nine years that mm -hmm. that didn't partake in that unless we were renting a kit and we cleared it with the rental company and and everything first but it, you know we know that some people are much more particular about their gear and we, we definitely wanted to respect that yeah it's it's um it's been kind of a large expenditure for me over the years so it uh I mean, it would make. I guess if I got in that a band like that, I would just buy a new kit that I didn't care about at all. Yeah, you, could, you know, I, I, you know, I had could, bases that I would buy, like really inexpensive bass guitars, mm -hmm. especially the first two years of the band, and I would get them at pawn shops or eBay, and oftentimes they wouldn't really be working well, so I'd get them, fix them up, get them to a state where it sounded decent enough. And then at the end of the show, I would just smash it or I would throw it across the stage or, or do something else with it. And for a while, because it was like 50 bucks or $60 here and there, after it got to a point where I couldn't repair it anymore with, you know, soldering kits and tape, I, I would donate the broken bass to charity. Like we, we would play at events where we, there would be a charity fundraiser or something where I would give it to someone and after a while, I was like, this is getting kind of expensive. So I stopped <laughs> doing that <laughs> like about year two or three. I decided I'm not going to do that anymore. Right, but, right. It yeah, does, so yeah. Breaking equipment gets expensive, as the Who found out a um, long, long time ago. Well, see, like Keith Moon actually lit a stick of dynamite in his drum set. Yes, he did. So uh -huh. I was like, that's the ultimate. Like, if I could do right. that, I would love it. But um, And his guitar player like, still deaf from it. Yeah. Yes, and it seems a little <laughs> bit dangerous. So yeah, it's probably a good thing that I didn't end up having access to dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that was one of my favorite bands growing up. That's one of the people I learned to play drums from. Sure. Uh, huge hero of key. I never understood how anyone could play that well and that out of control. Like it, it never seemed yeah. like he knew where he was going next, but it all, you know, it all worked. <laughs> I think, crazy. you know, that's the case with a lot of like my favorite musicians. They oftentimes are really chaotic or they give a sense of chaos, but they're so well trained that they can, that they control it all. Like you don't have to worry about it. Like, or, or they make it seem very flawless and simple as if this was nothing. And oh, right. Right. You know, I think, I think a lot of like 
punk musicians are actually can be very good musicians, but they don't give that vibe at all. They make you think like they just picked it up and they're terrible. But the reality is there, there's a lot of really good players and they just play so simply or they just kind of, they don't try and embellish what they're doing with, you know, in terms of like solos and that kind of thing. And they're just solid players, but uh, what, what they cut, the way, the way they give it um, the impression is that they're just very simple when in reality it's much more deep and nuanced than that. Yeah. I think Nirvana is a really good example of that because they, they are, we're kind of anti, um, anti polish, you know, they, their sure. whole thing was not to be polished. But when I read the biography about them, it, they worked really, really hard to get there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. They, you know, they worked really hard on every song and getting everything exactly how they wanted it. And then when they played, though, they they already they had it down, so they didn't have to think about it. So it looked like they're just you know like it like it's nothing, which is interesting. It was an interesting <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of yeah. the fun things about um, music and and kind of the theater of music, I think. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's an amazing thing about music and also how much it can can change, can change things. Um, which is, uh, I mean, one of the things, one of the amazing things about your book is how much, I mean, it, it's like you started out on a musical journey and then it went places that I think you didn't expect it to go. It starts with, um, it starts with a, uh, a question and answer session at a anime convention, I believe. You want to talk a little bit about that? It, yeah, so we did, I forgot that was actually pretty early on. Um, you know, this is about three months into me actually launching the band. Like once we actually had our first show, I booked our band for a gig at an anime convention because I just, I happened to come across one and I thought, wow, there's like thousands of, of these geeky kids who are really, really into Asian culture. Well, I have like a, you know, Asian American band that celebrates this culture. Why, why don't we actually play this and show them what a real rock band's like? And after playing a couple of them, I, you know, we would notice that we would oftentimes be the only Asians in the entire event. Like it was kind of weird. And, and one of these um, moments that really jumped out at me was the first time we played in Nashville, Tennessee. And this was at an anime convention. We got asked to be a part of a panel, which was not uncommon. Like we would do autograph sessions and panels is just a great way to promote the show. And one of the uh, guest liaisons asked us to be a part of this panel called Asians in America. So I was like, sure, why not? You know, what's it about? And they're like, uh, Asians in America. <laughs> like they rounded up all of the Asian guests and, and put them together in a room and let people ask questions. And it was the weirdest thing to me because like we walked into this room and it was jam packed full of people. And many of them had actually never met an Asian American in person before. So they had all kinds of ideas. And the person introduced this panel saying like, well, welcome to Asians in America. This is a free form panel. Anything's on the table. Like if there's anything you've always wondered about and of things that you always want to know about being Asian or Asian culture, you can ask these guests and i was not expecting what was to come i was just like are you kidding me and people would ask everything from like 
the size of genitals and shape and direction of them to if we use chopsticks and we ate things like pizza and hamburgers or if we actually could drive like we do in the fast and the furious it was just mind-boggling and at, at first kind of upsetting because you're just like this is like every ridiculous stereotype out there is this for real but as we kind of went into it probably 20 30 minutes in we just started having a lot of fun with it and just realized you know what this is our chance to actually address this stuff in a real and authentic kind of way so um it ended up being really really positive and we had a lot of great conversations with the, the attendees that are about like why they even had these notions to begin with. Like what were the things that are being taught about us through society, through movies, books, TV shows, and that sort of thing. And it gave us a chance to actually correct it instead of just allowing these assumptions to stay. Uh, that's the amazing thing. I mean, it kind of surprises me that in a city that big, there were so many people who are fans of anime, but never actually met an Asian person. I mean, I guess I'm really... Um, I guess the, op the opinions I get here are kind of slanted because, um, no pun intended, because I, I live on the West Coast. And even though I live in a very small town, um, there's still a lot of uh, different cultures that come through here. And then I realized when I moved to Los Angeles for a while that there was only, you know, there wasn't much culture here at all. But I still had, you know, I had seen different cultures from all over the world um, growing up. Uh, but yeah, so it's, what, it's just amazing that people kind of believe stereotypes. Like I knew when I watching old movies, when I saw, um, you know, stupid, uh, character caricatures of Asians, I just knew that wasn't real because I've met people before. Sure. <laughs> so it, it's and, interesting. And I actually lived in, ended up living in Nashville for a few years and uh -huh. there's, it's actually more diverse than people give it credit for like it was more diverse than portland oregon where i live for a huge chunk of time but i think what ends up happening is like just because they happen to be there or own restaurants or shops it didn't necessarily mean that the people would interact with them so they would only kind of interact with one small facet of who those people were like going to the restaurant to eat but not necessarily like knowing anybody in school and so i think that just gave kind of like a really kind of shallow one dimensional look at like an entire body of people that that happens to be very very diverse so i think that was part of it and i think the other part is just sometimes you just get inundated with images like throughout your entire life and whether you're conscious of it or not you start believing in those images so for example the the United States didn't actually have an on-screen kiss between an Asian male and a Caucasian female until the 2010s. Like the entire history of television, it was never on TV until The Walking Dead. And it was oh like really controversial. God, at the time. I didn't realize that. But, but still, wow. if, if you think about it, now nowadays, of course, we have Crazy Rich Asians and some other cinema, but uh, back then, even in like early 2010, even up to like 2015, I would do these panels. And as I was, you know, be in, as I would be um, interacting with attendees, I would be like, can anyone name a major motion picture with an Asian male as the lead in a romantic comedy? And out of the how many hundreds of thousands of films out there, no one can name a single one. 
And I'm like, can you name any major character on an eight, like Asian male in that kind of role on a TV show that actually speaks English? That is, you know, and no one could do it. You know, not until Fresh Off the Boat came out and Crazy Rich Asians and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. There was a time period in the in the mid 2000s where the only Asian characters on primetime television that were on TV, the only um, two actors that were on TV, both spoke other languages other than English. So you didn't have a single character that was just an Asian American. And and there's something about that if you're repeatedly told that, hey, these people are like not American or they were not presented as American. Like it's it's a weird thing if if we happen to be speaking without an accent or something like that. Like there's something that unconsciously we, we start building these images again and again. That's even another reason to like The Walking Dead. Um, I'm, I'm oh, it's fan. awesome. It, I'm a huge fan it, of that show, but yes, I never thought about... until Glenn got killed. It, well, that, until Glenn... Yeah, that was it terrible. Kind of downhill. It, it, that was terrible. Um, yeah, I have not finished it, um, but I got... I, I left it for a long time, and then I went back to it and realized, oh, now they're doing even different, you know, even weirder yeah. new things that's really impressive. There's, but, you know, the fact that Glenn was just a character... You don't really think of him as an Asian American. Like they, they no. played him as a person, which which is rare, and um, yeah. it's the kind of thing that sometimes programs do. They they probably were thinking about it, but I, you know, as an audience member, I didn't think about it at all. And um, it it's um, it's huge. It has it had an impact. It made a difference. Same thing with the actors. They they actually make a lot of acting choices based on that, and and you can see interviews with uh, Steve Nguyen who plays Glenn on The Walking Dead, and he's just was like saying how he didn't want to play up anything like he just wanted to be himself and bring himself to the show. He didn't want to be like, oh, I, you know, came, came from some convoluted background about being like somehow finding his way from Korea to the America or something like that. Oh, he was just like, yeah. I just wanted to be the guy who wore baseball caps, who was like. You know, he, he was really handy. Like he could sneak in and out of situations like there's no tomorrow. And like he was, you know, my, the thing I really like about the show and about his characters, he became kind of the moral compass of the show for, for a long time. His character was the one that kind of would bring people back to center and remind them of their humanity, which I think for me, you know, that's why I said like in, in, until his character wasn't on the show anymore, like it, like that was my favorite era because after that it just it got, it got dark. It, it, like, it, it, I, yeah, <laughs> I watch it. Yeah. And I feel I feel really it's, depressed. It's, people, <laughs> <laughs> but it changes. It comes and goes. The uh, and he's not the one wielding a katana either, which is uh, that's you true. Know, it, that's Michonne. Yeah. <laughs> that's Michonne. But and he's also without him, without that character, there would be no show. Yeah, because he saved everyone in the first shows. Um, they pointed that out on one of the Talking Deads. I also watched Talking Dead, and they pointed out how with without Glenn, there's no you know there's no Walking Dead. And I was like, oh, he was right. He That's like true. he saved well, everybody. He had a, he's the only one that yeah. <laughs> and their spinoff shows too. So <laughs> it's right. <laughs> Just starting those. Wow, that's nuts. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, back to your book. So um, you grew up in San Diego. And then you moved to Portland. Uh, you moved to Portland to be in another band. Isn't that right? Yeah. Uh, this was in 2003. I decided to 
drop out of college a couple months before graduating to move across the country to Portland so I could join this band called The Stivs. And mm-hmm. The Stivs was very much like an old school punk band. We oftentimes were described as a cross between Iggy Pop and The Stooges and ACDC. And I think that's where I, I really love that kind of sense of chaos on stage because that band was like wild on stage and it was so much fun. But that, that was the band that I toured with for for a bit before I ended up starting the slants. And when did you find out, I was surprised, not surprised by this. When did you find out that Portland was the whitest city in America? Oh, that was probably, uh, I want to say about a year after living there. Wow. <laughs> like, I, I mean, I had been I, walking the streets and that sort of thing. I'm like, huh, mm-hmm. it, this feels different than San Diego, but I couldn't quite place it. Like I didn't really understand. I didn't, think a whole lot about it and and then once it was pointed out and i was like oh that's what was missing you know because every other culture in america (laughs) it was just weird like i I just yeah but you know you you look at in a lot of ways portland kind of reflected what was on tv what was in the movies and what was presented as far as like being featured by music magazines like spin and rolling stone so you just kind of you know, everything was like, it was very white and white is kind of the default culture in our country. So you don't really think about it until um, it's pointed out. Then you're like, oh, wow, that is weird. I haven't seen a person of color in like six months. Like, that's a weird thing. They should be weird. really (laughs) strange. Yeah. Because, yeah, (laughs) that is a bizarre thing. It it really kind of like jumped out at me when I was Mm -hmm. actually looking for members of, of the band when I wanted to start an Asian band or a band that was primarily Asian that celebrated um, this kind of shared heritage, I just would look for people in the street. And then I was like, wow, there's like nobody here. And so it, like, it got to a point where sometimes I'd go out to eat and then I would find like a table of Asian people and I'd go introduce myself. Like, excuse me, I don't see a lot of Asian people around here. Uh, <laughs> I don't suppose one of you play music because I'm trying to start this band and half the time they would be from out of town, just visiting. <laughs> like they'd be coming from Eugene or something like that. And I'm like, okay, well, that, like when you start thinking about things in terms of diversity and you start looking for things, it, it, you know, that's when it becomes much more apparent. Right. Right. And I, yeah, I think that's also one of the reasons that, maybe racism persists so much because a lot of areas, especially in this country, they don't see any other culture. Correct. So, you know, they're, they're very, they might be an accepting of something that they don't even see. It's like, why is this culture important? Yeah, it's not, you know, you don't, it's not here. Like, and if you don't think about it because you're not around it or you don't mm-hmm. really interact with people, then it's very hard to prioritize. I mean, like Gallup did the study and they said three out of four white Americans in America did not have a single black friend or relationship of significance. Like they might have an acquaintance or a random coworker, but not like a close friend, not like the person you dial up when you have to move your house or like get a ride to the airport. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's shocking, but it's not that surprising. Like, and it, because we kind of like, prioritize the issues that are close to home that, that we're familiar with. It's, I think a lot of the same reason why, you know, same sex marriage wasn't a big deal for most people. Like most people didn't think about it. They just were completely fine with it being like illegal. 
until a lot of people started making noise and until it appeared in pop culture through shows like Will and Grace, which I think removed a lot of the barriers. And then people started coming out and we realized, wow, these are our family members, our friends, our neighbors. Uh, this, this is an issue that should matter. And then all of a sudden, within a span of just a few years, you saw this huge wave of change from the majority of people being opposed to the majority of, of Americans being pro same-sex marriage. And I think we haven't had that level of reckoning when it comes to race yet, because a lot of people still would like to believe that racism is this thing of the distant past and, and something that we feel very uncomfortable with discussing. Oh, right. I think that's true. Um, I mean, in a way, I've been... In a way, what's happening right now is... is uh, I don't want to say it's a good thing, but it's an eye-opener. You know, um, there's... I've I've been seeing this for 30 years, uh, more than that, really, since, I mean, I was born in 63, which is when Kennedy was shot, which was the, you know, the height of the um, beginning of the civil rights movement. And um, the fact that it's still around 57 years later, and um, there are huge, huge steps that have been taken um, since then, but it's just for someone like myself it's it's mind-boggling that there's that it's still so prevalent that people still see other people as different because their color of their skin is bizarre and and uh, there's you know everyone talks there's so much different um people putting solutions out there but it's it's a very tough thing to find a solution for it's like what the what in the world you know how do you get through to people education has is a big factor i guess People who have education seem to be more less and far less inclined to be uh, ignorant about race. Um, but it's just it's a tough thing because I don't know. It's like what do you, where does where does it go from here? Uh, I I always I'm worried now that what's happening literally in the streets could be hurting the case because you know it it's um, it gets so much bad press whether the yeah. press is right or not, you know, whether it's true or not, it gets the, it's just, it's nuts. I, th I think, you know, it's going to require change in a couple of different areas because we know with uh, racism, there are three primary areas where it kind of perpetuates. Uh, most people think about individual racism, like why some people ha harbor ill feelings towards people of color or why they hold these kind of stereotypes and that sort of thing. And that's just one part of it. The other is like, we also have a systemic or institutionalized problem. So laws that inadvertently discriminate against people based on race, but tied in with all of that is, is this cultural problem. And we, we have a culture that hasn't really had a genuine reckoning with, with race. And you mentioned like what's happening with George Floyd, with Breonna Taylor, with the numerous people um, kind of advancing this issue. It's becoming more and more prevalent to talk about in our culture, but we haven't had like a real reckoning. When you think about the history of like uh, other major kind of race related events, like Nazi Germany, like what did, what did we do? What did the world do when we finally defeated Nazi Germany? We put people on trial. We made people apologize for what happened. They had to pay reparations. They had to like pass laws like, hey, Nazism is, is not acceptable. When apartheid fell in South Africa, it was the same kind of thing. They actually brought a council up of 
of people of all the different tribes of the area and say, okay, how are we going to like create power structures that are actually equal? They acknowledged and, and apologized and wanted to find ways to amend the, the harm they did to the community. Well, nothing like that happened here, not with the, the fall of slavery, not with the end of segregation. Um, you know, we're, we're still finding that people are still passing legislation that kind of perpetuates discrimination or um, division. And so that's what I'm saying is like, we, we need to have that reckoning that moment to say like, you know what, as a culture, as a society, we acknowledge what has happened. We apologize from it and moving forward, we're gonna have a shared sense of power to change not only our laws, but this culture that's upholding this idea that it's uncomfortable or unnatural to talk about race, when in fact, it should be very natural. It's a part of our major part of our identities and communities, and it shifts American culture in a lot of important ways. So we, we just need to have those kinds of like conversations, whether folks <laughs> want them or not. Uh, yeah, we, the, it, it's, it's good that we're starting to, um, you know, it's starting to be out there every day, but I see a, um, a serious, serious problem from every, you know, it's, this is kind of shining a light on the fact that yes, the police force is a racist institution and there's a lot more of them. I mean, government is a racist institution. The, 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 the federal government is a racist. I mean, there's all kinds of racism kind of built in to how they operate right now there's also too much power given to 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 you know too few people so sure. it it makes it really really hard to to fight and make changes against and when things die down i mean this is i, I was in los angeles for the riots in los angeles okay when they burned a good part of the city i mean i was literally a block away from getting my head bashed in uh being in the wrong place at the wrong time uh, it made no difference I mean, they just waited for it to die down, and then they they put people put blame on different people, and there was it, it didn't mean anything all in all, you know. And they also, I um, I read an inter, inter, interesting article a month or two ago about how this will all be ghosted. They were actually talking about the virus, but I know it'll be worse with the racism. They try, they will try to um, just make just not talk about it uh, once it's it's kind of die down which is a, also a big problem is that um and, and why i'm really impressed with the people who are still on the streets and the people who have you know are, are keeping this conversation going even though i don't agree with everything they're doing they're they're staying out there they're, they're saying no this is a real this you know this isn't going away there needs to be something done about it what's hard is um what to do about it, I guess. That, that's the tough thing. It, it's the tough thing. And it's, it's tough because a lot of people want very quick, decisive action. And mm -hmm. I think that it's much more complex, much more nuanced than that. When it comes to shifting an entire culture, we, we got to look at that bigger picture. And sometimes that means the immediate solutions might not be that agreeable to folks, but we have to think about that long-term change. Like what, what do we need to do in terms of like shifting our laws, policies, cultures, institutions? Like it's easy to say like, we need to stop the immediate harm, but it's, it's much more difficult to like, um, to undo centuries of built systems. Like I think about it, 
well, coming from the Pacific Northwest, I would battle these like stupid blackberry bushes. They grew up, they grew like wildfire in my backyard. Yep. And yep. Very familiar. <laughs> you can cut them. You can burn them to the ground. You can spray Roundup. It doesn't matter because if a single piece of it remains in the ground, it'll come back and destroy everything that you have. That's kind of like racism. Like we, not only do we need to trim it up and clean it up at the moment, we actually have to completely remove all of the pieces of it. But that's a much longer thing. So when it comes to dealing with the the harms of our country, like we we need to like have that solve. Like, okay, how do we deal with some of the immediate pains? But we got to go beyond that and say, how do we uproot the systems that uphold what what is actually happening? And I think a lot of times people are just looking for the immediate thing. Like, how do I make my backyard look better immediately? And not knowing that, hey, in a year, it's going to pop up again. Like, so, you know, like, this is why I think, like, in terms of, like, the protests and things that are happening, that is good for bringing immediate attention. But unless you actually address it by actually electing people and holding them accountable at the the ballot box – um, everything from the president to the school board, not a lot's going to change. It's going to revert back and people are going to forget that those major like things had actually took place or happened. Like you mentioned, like they would kind of ghosted, like people move on to the next big thing, but that, that it just like dealing with blackberries or any other kind of like reoccurring, annoying, like uh, weed in, in your backyard you have to maintain it. It requires like a constant vigilance. And, and that's how we see long-term sustaining change. That it's uh, that's a really good point. Those are, those are wise words. Um, and that's unfortunately, like I'm a person that thinks, well, you, you keep making laws about it. They don't, I don't know how much that helps, but it's what you have to do. I mean, some people still disagree with segregation laws. Some people still disagree with, you know, that you should have, that people should be able to go to whatever school they want to go to. And those laws were made 30 years ago. But in reality, this is not a couple hundred years old. This is 10,000 years old. Sure. This is, you know, as long as there have been people on the planet, they've looked at other tribe. well, once there was 100 or so, they've looked at other <laughs> tribes yeah. and said, that's not us. And then at a certain point, when there got to be thousands of people, the tribes would um, capitalize on that. The leaders would capitalize on that to control their tribe. They're not us. We're us. And it, it actually is one of the ways that, that uh, people survive so long. Um, the, in the book Sapiens, he, they kind of discuss that, is that, you know, Battling different tribes is a way that that hu- humans probably survived instead of Neanderthals. I mean, it was yeah, it's something really built into us. So it's really hard to say we don't need this anymore. You know, we didn't need it four hundred years ago. We don't need it. We certainly don't need it now. And it's especially hard that well, it's really only fifty years that we've even been trying very hard in America. It, Correct. You know, fifty years ago, most of America was like, screw those guys. Yeah. You know, know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, yeah. So it's and it's that's you're, what I'm saying. You're right. Change, you have to make change the culture too, because right, we have to change how people look at and define what do we mean by us or our tribe. But that you know, in addition to that, we we need to have laws that reflect it. And 
you know, this is like, for me, like why I inadvertently, I, I think kind of unintentionally through my, my life story became a free speech advocate, like an, an advocate for civil liberties, because it's well and good to like, say we should ban hate speech. And like, of course, I don't think like people should be using hateful terms. But when we start really thinking about who gets to define what hate speech means and who gets to enforce and control that, that kind of thing, we start realizing we have to look at that bigger picture and say, wait, unless you protect the speech and views of people you disagree with the most, your own views and your own speech are going to be in danger. And so that's why like, we have to think about what are the rules that are, are the most fair, like that we could all agree on that would be the most fair no matter who was in charge. Like that's a big long-term thinking kind of thing that is very hard for, for people with, um, who are experiencing immediate pain to really think about. And, you know, that, that's a, one of those things that I've just really been kind of grappling with lately is like, okay, how do we create change and how do we convince people that this law might not seem that great to you right now, but in the long term, you're really going to appreciate this thing. That is what's really hard because it's, it's sort of like the, this law is going to affect your kids and they're going to really appreciate it. Um, and free speech is a, re- I have a real struggle with that, a real sure. struggle. I mean, in Nazi, in after G- Nazis were defeated, you, Nazism was outlawed. You know, I think it's loosened up slightly, but you could not have Nazi symbols there. Correct. Period. Even though those symbols were stolen by Nazis and they don't, you know, they were something they used, they didn't really, they, they got rid of them. So it's a tough one for me because they, um, but I'm on the same I definitely agree that, yeah, who decides what hate speech is? Who, you know, who decides what YouTube channel is supposed to be taken off because they said something that um, all the PC people didn't like? And, you know, I'm a very far left-leaning person, but I think that the politically correct movement is killing a lot of the left side of the I, argument. Like, it, I, it's, I agree, it goes so. too far. Well, I think so it's, it's hard. Because, yeah, they want to... They, it can definitely be seen as uh, crushing free speech, uh, you know, as, as not allowing it. And that, that that's, doesn't work either. And that's the funny thing. Um, free speech used to be an issue championed by the left. Like that was right. like oh, big the, t- the, yeah. the key, key yep. value sets, especially, you know, especially when you think about like the civil rights movement, like the right to protest was like huge. But sometime in the last 10, 15 years, it became championed by the right who decided that they felt victimized by, by you know, what, what you mentioned there, the PC culture. <laughs> and so now it's like kind of an odd situation where you still have some, you know, celebrated long-term institutions like the American Civil Liberties Union or ACLU uh, still fighting for it. But mm-hmm. a lot of times people are have very mixed feelings about it. Like support for freedom of speech by the left is kind of at an all time low. So it's, uh, you know, and it's very much because of this feeling of uneasiness, like, well, we don't want the other people side to win. We don't want them to take advantage of this like loophole, even though it's been protecting our own people. And And, and the reality of it is that free, free speech can be taken to, extremes when it's not free speech it, it's um uh you know it's people lying about things and and uh getting away with it basically or or putting out information that's false in order to 
to make their opinion heard that absolutely you know it can it's can be taken way too far as we're seeing in this country now i mean we're seeing something that we we haven't seen for a long time not that every po- politician hasn't lied i mean i know they have because <laughs> yeah. you know there are aliens don't tell me and and <laughs> <laughs> well i think so, <laughs> and what people forget is like those kinds of things are not protected like threats threats of violence if if you if you threaten someone or if a, if you're making a misleading statement those things aren't protected by freedom of speech and so i think i think the what we find is it's not just because of like this uneasiness because we're afraid like you know someone else will win a lot of that uneasiness stems from the fact that most americans don't understand their own inherent rights they don't understand the bill of rights and how it actually impacts our day-to-day living and what is protected and what isn't protected you know we know for a fact that the or- people organizing in the streets right now protesting against this administration that is 100% protected under the first amendment right so the fact right. that the government is sending federal agents to, to stomp them down, to using unmarked vans, kidnapping people, persecuting them, that is illegal. That's unconstitutional. But this is why we have to go back to like protecting our civil liberties and say, like, hold on a second. Like, none of this matters if we don't have these basic inherited rights like protected and that you know r- rights that were really you know hard fought for. We need to remember like they. They don't mean anything if people don't step up and actually, you know, enforce them. True, that's very true. And when you have the the cultures and you know so divided like they are now, um, it's really tough because one side wants to keep the propaganda going because that's how they're winning, and the other side wants to squash the propaganda even if it's not propaganda. Like no yes. matter what it is, you know, okay. Somebody might be talking, saying something that's true, but it's based on maybe that propaganda. So they can't say that either. And and there's, you know, it, it's it's really nuts right now. Um, but I also, <laughs> I know we don't have all day. And so I want to get into the, um, a part of free speech that you dealt with directly. Um, and a part of the, I would call PC, it seems like you got hit by the PC uh, wagon a little bit. Uh in some strange ways. <laughs> in some strange ways. But when I was listening to the book, I was like, well, this is, this is a long time ago, and it was happening then. You were trying to trademark a name, and the trademark office decided that you couldn't do it for the, some insane reasons. Uh, shorts, what happened there? Well, in, in short, the trademark office had this old law that says you can't register trademarks that are considered scandalous, immoral, or disparaging, or in other words, like deeply offensive. And they said the name of my band, The Slants, was disparaging to persons of Asian descent, even though we were an Asian American band and we were playing Asian American festivals and doing outreach on behalf of the US government on on Asian American issues. So uh, that's kind of what happened. And that kicked off a battle that lasted almost a decade. And the funny thing about it is like, you know, if in order for them to enforce this law, they were supposed to find, you know, what's called a substantial composite, like a whole lot of Asian people had to be offended for them to be able to enforce the law. The problem is they didn't find a single person. They relied on internet sources like urbandictionary.com to justify their decision. And that's kind of like, 
what put me on the path of being a free speech advocate because I realized I was like, hey, the the intention of like not offending people, that's a good thing. But in this case, clearly no one was offended. Like the only people that were offended were non-Asian people being offended on our behalf. And that right. was a mind-boggling thing because we came back with surveys, community leaders. We had incarceration camp survivors write them letters. And despite the fact that it overwhelmingly demonstrated that Asian Americans were in support of the work we were doing, the government was like, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. And they just kept doubling down on that. And so that's what eventually took me to the U.S. Supreme Court. And this is what amazes me is that you gave them... I mean, boatloads of sufficient evidence to to reverse the decision. And basically, they wouldn't do it. And it took you eight years to get it done. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, spoil the book for for those who might go out and buy it. So I won't say what happened with the Supreme Court, but you had to take it all the way to the top. I don't know. It's just mind-boggling. And if you're playing punk music and you're not offending people, what are you doing? <laughs> well, to be fair, the slants was not, I never considered that a punk fan. I, we always got ourselves synth pop, but you know, that's the thing. I was like, you know, art should be unconventional. It should shake people up a little bit. Like that's one of the main purposes of art is to get people to think about society. And whether it's through our music or through our name or our stage show, like that's what we were doing. And, mm -hmm. you know, we should be a country that protects artistic expression in that particular way. And so it was just, just kind of really strange to find that America, you know, so-called so land of the free was not like even recognizing that even with the arts, like, you know, so we, we, we had the trademark office protecting institutions like the KKK and Stormfront and other major white supremacist hate groups through the trademark system. Yet when it came to an anti-racist band, they decided that was too edgy for them. It's, it's very strange. It's really bizarre. And I, ne I never even thought of the name as all, I mean, you know, when I first saw it, I thought it was clever and, and it made sense for the band. And I never even considered that it might be offensive to somebody and the other i mean the other thing that blew my mind is all the other names that you uh have examples of in the book that they let go that they said were okay um yeah. that just was like shocking to me um i don't know i almost wonder if it was uh um if it was a bunch of white guys with the name if they would have been okay it, it well we were bizarre. told that it would have been fine Oh, that's so, even, that, that's like, nuts. We asked them, we said, like, hey, how come you allowed this, if, if this term is really as offensive as you say it is, how come you gave it to everyone else? Because there were almost 800 trademark registrations for slant or some variation of the word. And we said, what is it about this band that's different than all the hundreds of other people that you gave this trademark to? And they said, it's because you are too Asian. And they said, it's incontestable that the applicant is of Asian descent, so that was me, and part uh -huh. of an Asian band. So they said, so there's an association with this outdated racial slur. They, they said, if it was an all-white band, we wouldn't associate the term with, with Asian people. 
but because the, the band is comprised of Asian people, you can't distance yourself away from the term or not. So in other words, in the, in the name of fighting against racism, they were denying me rights based on my race. And that's just one of the weird upside down ways that our laws get enforced. When right. we start thinking like, hey, you know, we can appeal to someone and give them our rights, like uh, our dignity and say like, you, you should know better. And you can decide what what is offensive or not offensive. And this is one of the, the kind of the weird things about the freedom of speech battle. We find that the people in charge oftentimes can't make logical decisions that involve people with experiences that they don't share. So they, in the uh, eight years that I went through this legal battle, they did not speak to a single Asian about the issue. They thought they did not need to. They, because they already consulted UrbanDictionary.com. Well, this is this is what blows my mind, is they were basing their decision from the get-go, and then they defended it on UrbanDictionary.com, on basically on a Google search. So All rather than do any real... Point. Yeah. Rather than do any real research, they did a Google search, and they, they went, ah, we're good. Yeah. Well, that's the nature of power. I mean, you think about it. We get involved with debates with people we disagree on. And if they say something that contradicts us, even if they're in the, like, if they're right and we're wrong, it usually takes a lot for most people to say, you know what, I was wrong on that. More, more often than not, uh, people tend to pivot. They say like, oh, no, 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 that's, you, you're misinterpreting me. And we, we kind of double down on our position. Mm. Well, the government takes yes. that and they, they magnify that by like a thousandfold. And they're like, no, there's no way we could be wrong about this. And they will go to the very top of the chain to the Supreme Court in order to defend that position, no matter what it might be. Uh, my obscure trademark law cases, yes, that's that's part of it. But we we have the same government who said, who fought like the ability to in integrate our schools, who who fought, you know, so that they, they, our governments to this day still has never apologized for locking up American citizens of Japanese descent, stuck them in concentration camps. We said that was our right to do so. Like, we never said that was, you know, that was a bad decision. And it's so it's, it's kind of interesting to see, like, this is that same problem, that the problem of division is oftentimes driven by ego and pride. And our government is a prime example of what happens when we you know don't afford someone else the dignity to say we are wrong about something that's really true that yeah that makes a lot of sense and i think that's what a lot of the statue tearing down statues has to do with it i mean i appreciate that these statues were a work of art that someone did but they don't need to be standing anywhere in a park or in front of a capitol building they can be somewhere else um, but I kind of get, I understand the other side for that very reason, is that they've seen this statue there for literally 200 years and nobody had a problem with it. So why are they having a problem with it now? Uh, the reality is that, that they did have a problem with it for 200 years. It's just, you know, they're, they're seeing they this chance. They didn't have a voice. Yeah, they didn't have a voice. Exactly. They didn't have a voice. So that's a, it's a really good point. And getting people to pivot uh i know from myself is is very difficult it, it's hard to get people to see a different point of view especially when 
in this kind of media culture, when everyone is screaming everything, you know, points of views aren't really discussed very much. Well, that's why I like podcasts because I can have someone on and discuss something with them for a bit instead of sure. just, you know, this is probably the most I've talked politics on my podcast because <laughs> there's there's just so many political podcasts out there. And, uh, um, but because I, I knew this story, I really wanted to, to have you on and talk about it. And um, it, it's really, it's, it's a phenomenal book. It's, it's, it's quite a story and it's a head scratcher. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's really amazing what it goes through. And uh, also, I mean, it's great that you weave in not only what a band goes through, but what you, you were the, you started the band and you became kind of the band manager and and you you wore and the producer and you wore a lot of hats so um i think that's an interesting story too is that there's so much more to getting a band on stage and in the studio and on a recording than people have any idea so i i like that you're telling that story at the same time um and really you start with that story and then you you kind of ease into this insane trademark thing <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, a lot of it came from reading Anthony Bourdain's book, uh, Kitchen Confidential. I just love that inside story about his pathway to becoming a chef and what it was like working in the kitchens and especially after hours. And it just reminded me so much of being a touring musician. And and that's why I was like, oh, I want to I want to give people a little bit of a glimpse of this because I spent a lot of my time. uh, Well, I did until this year, I spent it touring the country and speaking at um, law firms and law schools and uh, you know the American Bar Association and groups like that and I would always try and tell them like like kind of the behind the scenes story to my law case but I wanted them to know what it was like beyond like being the face of the Supreme Court case like I'm like there's so much more to it because like I still had a life outside of this case and I was a struggling musician. I was trying to deal with all these other things that, uh, you know, weren't really easy to deal with that most people don't even think about that, uh, like a musician would have to deal with. And so I wanted to bring it to life to say, like, paint, paint the whole picture of like, here's what it was like, like emotionally, mentally to, to go through this entire journey. And it's a weird, weird head trip. Like, I mean, I still think about it from time to time. Like I, can't believe this happened it's yeah that's gotta i can imagine that you would think that oops somebody's calling me that's so weird i just started my ipad to look at something and someone called me how dare they <laughs> what timing <laughs> yeah oh my gosh so there oh so um what is the status of the slants now is so, is there still a slants or kind of kind so, of yeah, we're, we're no longer touring as a band, not just because mm-hmm. of COVID. We actually made this decision like last November. Um, we wanted to focus primarily on our nonprofit. So we started a, a, a nonprofit organization called the Slants Foundation, where we raise money to provide funding and mentorship to aspiring artists who want to incorporate a little activism into their life. So that's kind of been the, the main focus. We're still writing and we're working on another album, but that album is not just going to incorporate our our band members now. We're actually going to be collaborating with artists from around the country, so that we can use our platform to highlight their work and and create something together. So I'm really really excited about that. 
Yeah, that's that is awesome. That's really awesome. It's good work, and you've been doing good work for years. Um, it sounds like kind of unintentionally, but um, it's <laughs> it's great that you took that on and and that you're doing it. Um, we are gonna wrap it up here. I know you've got other things, other things you got to do, but um, really, really appreciate having you on the podcast. This has been very informative, very, really good. It was great thank talking you. to you. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I'm, thank you for listening to the book. And so if, for folks who are interested in it, they can just go to slantedbook.com. You can read a sample online, or I think uh, Audible is, is the, the carrier of the audiobook. So I think people can like get a link to it from the website too. Yeah, Audible. That's how I'm listening to it, and I, um, I'm really glad that I, I could listen to it without a prescrip- uh, prescription subscription. Oh, great! <laughs> Maybe I need yeah. a prescription, but that's a different story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So this is Joel Albrecht, and you've been listening to. Were you still talking? My guest today has been Simon Tam from uh, formerly of the Slants, but also um, of a lot of other things. A lot of lot going on. His book Slanted. An Asian American uh, Troublemaker, Story of an Asian American Troublemaker is available now. It's just an amazing book. You really should check it out. And uh, I will be back very soon with more amazing guests. So thank you for listening. And as always, be good to each other. And as I've been saying lately, be good to yourself. Take lots of vitamin E. And there we go. That's it. Gonna end my recording. Oh no, that doesn't work. Okay.